The presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. As stories continue to highlight the stress placed on educators amid the shift to remote learning, it's important we recognize the students facing similar emotions. Our partners at Empatico are working hard to provide caregivers at home with resources to help children break through the isolation we're all experiencing. To learn more about Empatico, visit participate.com slash oneducation. If aliens are real, okay. I'd actually be happy about this because that means that they haven't destroyed us yet. Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will dive into expert predictions of what next fall could look like, debate whether we should be worried about giant hornets and aliens, and our guest this week is author Eric Kalenz. Not just giant hornets, <laughs> giant death hornets. Yes. Have you seen those these things? things? Are, those things are like so... I hate hornets in general. I hate wasps. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, um, large spiders. Uh, you know, the pretty much any kind of giant insects. I I go crazy on them and just try sure. to destroy them. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I saw some pictures of those things. That's nightmare that is inducing. terrifying. Those yeah, things yeah. are terrifying. Where they, they there's just some videos of them eating uh, honeybees or whatever it might be, like taking <laughs> their soft, biting their heads off or whatever right. it might be. I was like, gosh, it's just yeah. We I, like I said in a conversation in a direct message conversation, we just are obsessed with um, things that make us like crazy like hysteria like starting things so that's one of the things that's appeared this past week that i was just like oh my god what about aliens <laughs> and aliens yeah so there was um and this was in the new york times in the washington post the u.s navy has released some videos of some unide- unidentified flying objects which if you're from roswell new mexico like i am uh went to school in roswell you already know that this those things actually exist and all of this stuff. Why, why aren't we just admitting that it exists and let's just move forward with this theory of alien life. But instead we have to have all these conspiracies, but anyway, they have some videos of it. So really drive people going like the aliens are here too. So, you know, what's funny is that all of this, all of those, all of those like photos and videos, that's all because of that blink 182 guy. Uh, yeah, you, he's, you know about this, he, right? Uh, yeah, he is so crazy. Uh, he's out gosh, there. It's the bassist guy. No, no, the lead singer, the, the former lead singer. Lead singer well, I there's. Think. I mean, there was. Well, well, the bass sing, the bass player was also a singer. So they had two. Basically, there was the okay. the guy that played the. I know who you're talking about though, because I yeah. ha, I've I've listened to him on Joe Rogan, and he's and no, he's he's out there. He's yeah. got some uh, conspiracy theories of, I mean, of all kinds of theories, especially about aliens, though, specific to a- to aliens. Yeah. Though, you know what? I'm not going to disagree with some of the stuff that he actually comes up with. Just that he hey, takes it to the next right. plane. Maybe he's the visionary we need for this. Hey, maybe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Giant hornets I, and aliens this week I, along that, you know, the virus wasn't enough. So so we have to listen, come up if with aliens the next are, If aliens are real... Okay. I'd actually be happy about this because 
that means that they haven't destroyed us yet, which means that they're probably benevolent, or at least the ones that we've so met. They're, they're like the Vulcans. Happy. If people don't know Star Trek yeah. lore. We could use some Vulcans right now. We, we could, could use some Vulcan medicine. We could use a Vulcan vaccine. We could use a Vulcan mind meld. That's what we I want to do. Just really anything but what we're doing right now. Like, like 2020 is going to go down in history as the crappiest year. Yeah. <sighs> Maybe ever, like, like it was like, you know, well, we're four I mean, months in. Years, we're four though. months into what feels like we've already lived a decade. Yes, I would agree, but I don't think it's the 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 craziest year ever. Wasn't there some years with like the Black Plague and like quarter of the population on Earth died and stuff? Yeah, yeah. 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 Context. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm just saying Black Plague though. It could have been bubonic. I don't know which one it actually was, but I know there was some times Spanish Bad influenza things. killed a bunch of twenty year olds. Um, it's true. I'm I'm trying to think of. I mean, the World Wars eras, but this is crazy. This Someone is definitely made a right point. there. Someone actually made the point on a podcast I was listening to the other day about how when they were going through, for example, the Black Plague, yeah, they weren't just dealing with that. They were dealing with all the other things that killed you on a regular basis that <laughs> yes. we don't die from now. Like That's right? so true. So so you could have got just, a cold and died. Right, yes. Right. Yes. right. It, it, like childbirth yeah. was lots like, of fatal. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we're laughing now, but that was actually that that's the truth. Yes. So like, you know, it was it's bad right now, (laughs) but it's been bad before, too. It's been Um, definitely bad. And, you know, I so I I was listening to this uh, this podcast and it was an interview with one of my favorite podcasters, Dan Carlin, who who does the Hardcore History podcast. And he was actually being interviewed and um and uh, it was really interesting. They they brought up some really good, really good points about that. I want to, um, you know, we we went off schedule here and, and went right into the death hornets because I think every good podcast <laughs> starts with death hornets. But I'll tell you something else that's that's given me nightmares, and this is such first world problems. But I'll tell you, I haven't been able to last more than a day in minecraft hardcore in like a month now uh, and a minecraft day or a yeah like day? a minecraft day oh my so goodness i keep dying like you die right at the beginning and it's so demoralizing man it's like <laughs> oh so it's like because I, I i gave satisfactory a little bit of a break because i was definitely getting burnt down on it but i'm so excited about it that i don't want to like yeah, lose my interest it. in it for sure. like long term so i've stopped and i tried to play minecraft minecraft hardcore again because Mm -hmm. i lost my really good game that i had and i just i just kept starting and dying and starting and dying and i did that probably 10 times in the last three days where i've died (laughs) within the first like one or two nights but if you're gonna die anytime uh, it usually would be within the first yeah few nights because you're so susceptible to you know those minecraft environments (laughs) So it's like my the bubonic my, plague. Yeah, bubonic plague. There's you know the zombies. They'll infect you. Yeah, you know, giant death hornets yeah, and death. skeletons shooting arrows at me. This is yes. it's bad on every. It's bad on every front right now, friends. Yeah, is what virtual we're or real life environments. Oh boy, the struggles are real. The struggles are real. Um, 
you know, some really cool things have been happening, though. Uh, so Chat on Education Live went into its second week. We actually released it as a podcast this time, um, as an episode. And it's funny. It's funny. I had originally thought about, you know, um, putting music on the front of it and maybe mm-hmm. putting music on the end of it and making, a, making it, you know, producing it a little. And, and then I was like, eh, no. I, I, it just, I, so I just put it out and hopefully people like it and enjoy it. It was fun to do. Um, and so we hope that people go and watch, like, like join us on Twitter on, on, not on Twitter, join us on Twitch and, and participate because it would be a lot of fun to like have, I can imagine that Friday night, especially right now when we're not, no one's doing anything, no one's going anywhere, you know, you might as well sit on a laptop, throw some earbuds in. And, uh, you know, uh, join us in the conversation on, on Twitch. So Friday nights at eight, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty fun. I think it could be a thing. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the best part is the addition of an live audience, basically. So an audience that would actually go in and ask questions, give feedback, make fun of us, whatever else it might be. Um, and then we're trying to keep the conversations though similar to this stuff to also vary them as far as what we're what we're talking about plus we have different voices there so yeah um that i think is is the other element to this is um you know other folks you and i in. you and i are middle-aged men and it would be nice you know it's nice when we bring in women obviously into the conversation but we'll i think we're going to be bringing more of our team into there you know as far as just different voices and be able to hear just people's different opinions you know so it's not just always me and you um kind of we work with really smart people so yeah yeah so i think that would be awesome that's the best part is is if you guys can do it it actually adds a great element to the show when you are there and giving us feedback and questions and anything else yeah weighing in Weigh yes. in, folks. So, eight o'clock on Friday nights. If you're not doing anything, join us and hang out for an hour and have a fun conversation. Speaking of fun conversations, well, maybe not so fun. I don't know. I don't know these days, man. But I, I, I want to set this up and I want to have a quick conversation because I think it encompasses a bunch of the stuff that we had in the outline that we wanted to talk about. Um, so I was listening to, um a podcast and I, and I heard someone frame kind of the future in a really interesting way. And I think it caught my attention because it had a bit of like a historical sort of reference and that's kind of my jam. So, you know, in the, in the 1400s, 1300s and, and going back basically into like the, the, the dark ages and, and medieval times um, when they were drawing up maps for, you know, especially um, whatever was west of England, uh, west of Great Britain, you know, into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, they they didn't know what was out there. They mm-hmm. didn't know what was beyond, you know, what, what was next. And so they used to always draw, and it's, and it's pretty common, so you can, like, Google the, the saying... Here be dragons. 
And if you Google that, you'll actually see some really interesting like history information about about how they used to draw dragons on on maps, in particular in spaces where they didn't know what was there, mm. um, with the idea that you know it's the unknown, it's the great unknown, it's dangerous over there. Uh, this is where the dragons are, uh, and some people even believe that there were dragons in those spaces, which was which is interesting. I mean, and you got to remember what time we're talking about in the the era that we're talking about, and you know, I was drawn to that that metaphor to talk about, you know, what's next after this we've been talking about this quite a bit um but definitely some things are starting to happen now um places our economies are starting to open up and um and and places are starting to to go back to work um industries are starting to open and and schools are starting to open in in some countries um you know students wearing wearing masks and uh, and stuff like that in in places like Vietnam, um, you know, kids are are back in class, uh, and and you know, here be dragons, man. I, I don't know, I don't know what this looks like going forward. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uncertain, and one of the things that's probably the most. I mean, the uncertainty actually brings about a lot of anxiety. So the concept of opening things and becoming back, going back to normal and that things are going to slowly but surely head in that path of normalcy um, really does bring comfort to a lot of people, doesn't matter, worldwide, um, whether it be going back to school or reopening the businesses and and the economies, et cetera, and people going back to work. Um, the the problem is, and this will continue to be the problem is, we don't know enough about what's actually going to happen. You know, when all of these things actually start occurring. So when we do go, let's say, halfway back to normal, uh, with some provisions and guides, as we've seen in these pictures. Uh, from the school, just the school perspective, um, the social distancing, the um, equipment. So it'd be, you know, uh, I saw some pictures of some monks, some Buddhist monks uh, wearing face masks, uh, right. protective shields. I saw kids in Israel uh, yeah, wearing, wearing uh, masks Norway, that, that looked like they were made from their parents. Their parents made them really, yeah. really super cute. I mean, like Mickey Mouse kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, and tons of other countries where people, yeah. little kids are wearing masks. Is that the new normal? And is that going to make sure that a giant outbreak doesn't restart? Because like mm -hmm. you just said, Mike, too, you said you could envision, you said last weekend on Monday, that uh, next fall, Ontario schools will go back uh, to they'll just go back to, to yeah, school I think so. yeah. with, with, with uh, who knows what kinds of provisions and whatever else it might be, you know, in place. But we don't know enough about any of this stuff as far as how this, how that could affect, you know, the, the outbreak status of this and whether or not what we're actually currently doing is actually part of the reason why in some places there is a stabilization as far as, you know, 
um, the number of outbreaks and and we're stabilizing the curve. Let's just say you know that that term that's being uh, thrown out there. The interesting parts is if you read this article, which we're going to link in the show notes, not the one that has to do with the little kids that are already showing us kind of the future, but the other article basically where we have some experts that say, will schools be open in September? And there's some experts that are weighing in on this topic. One mm -hmm. of the things that I thought was super interesting about this article, you have to guys have to look, take a look at it, is this concept of testing students and basically being able to do widespread testing and temperature checks to be able to gauge whether or not a student has symptoms and whether or not they're allowed entry into a school, basically a green or a red, uh, a pass or a, a stop, you know, kind of thing as far as entry into the school. I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of th questions that I have, though, as far as follow-up questions, as far as uh, civil rights and a whole bunch of other things. You know, in mm. some of these countries where they're actually doing some of these things, they citizens don't have the same rights as they do in the United States. But, you know, we're probably going to be willing to give up some of those rights in order to be able to go in and function as a bigger society, I think. I don't know, you know, as far as that goes. The other part, though, too, that's very, very interesting is that we already know that at least a quarter of the population – that has COVID-19 doesn't never show symptoms. They, they don't get temperatures. They don't have any of the underlying symptoms yet. They are carriers of, of COVID-19. So widespread testing as far as temperature checks upon entering school, all of this stuff still could not, it still could not be enough to be able to go ahead and, and spread kind of some things. And when, an outbreak occurs, let's say, you know, in one of the these, like in a town here in Minnesota. Then I, I would imagine that what's going to happen is the whole district is going to shut down for a time period and then like go through some protocols before they can reopen again. So it's it's that that uh, unknown that causes a lot of anxiety and and it should be really interesting. I, I'm interested in hearing people's thoughts as far as on all of these different predictions that these experts have is far as not only will the schools be open, but once they do open, we talked about social distancing last week as far as the possibility of doing that or the impossibility of being able to do it within the buildings that we have. But there's much, it goes much deeper than that. There's so many more layers to this. And mm -hmm. we have three months, which seems impossible to me, to be mm -hmm. able to prepare for next fall, you know, as far as to be able to do this. I don't know. I, that's I don't say. I, it, it, and I can see where people are ang anxious and 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 full of anxiety and and all kinds of different things. You know, feeling uneasy uh, about what is you know around the corner here next fall. Yeah, yeah, and um, as we're gonna hear from our guests this week, you know, every school, every district, every neighborhood is going to be different and what works for them and doesn't work for them and what works in Ontario may not work in Minnesota and definitely wouldn't work in New York City. Uh, and, you know, like you said, what works in China or Vietnam, which are, you know, communist countries um, where you can basically say you're going to do this because, you know, we can tell you what to do. Um, you know, that's obviously not the way it works in the United States and, and also generally speaking, not the way it works in Canada either. Um, you know, 
So everyone's going to be different. We're, um, you know, not all equal in a lot of ways uh, when it comes to this and, and everything is not happening the same everywhere mm. uh, for sure. And there's, uh, there's a lot of ways that we're going to learn, you know, how to approach this and, you know, hopefully we can take bits from one place and bits from another place and bits from another place and kind of hopefully everyone can make a plan for them that works for them and their communities uh, and help them um, make sense of everything, right? One one of the topics too, Mike, that I wanted to make sure we bring up on chat on education on Friday, so hopefully you guys join us, is this concept of what do we do this summer? And I ask our guest too, the, who's coming up next, this same question, like what can we do this summer in order to fully prepare or at least somewhat prepare, let's say, let's say a little bit prepare our teachers for next fall and the unknowns of next fall. So what are some things that we should invest our time, efforts, monies towards? Everybody talks about professional development in a multitude of ways. Talk about a time when it, Every district is going to have to make some key decisions about what to invest your money's times, efforts towards so that you are as prepared as you possibly can be as a staff to be mm -hmm. able to address distance learning or a combination of, of a blended learning approach, if that's what ends up happening, uh, to do the best job you possibly can next fall. So now that we have some time to do some things and and we know what could possibly happen, what should we be doing? <laughs> That's really what I'm what I'm really saying is like yeah. what like we're asking ourselves that same question yeah. and there's a lot of arguments and discussion about this which sh should be I I agree there should be a lot of a big discussion about it maybe it is individual I think it is actually each individual district, but I, I just wonder if there's any commonalities between all of us. Like, I wanted to mention something yeah. uh, that that I'm involved in actually that that kind of responds to this a little bit. Um, so, I'm involved in this uh, this interesting um, endeavor called the U.S. Challenge. It's uh, there, there's a website uschallenge.org. Uh, that I would suggest uh, folks go to. Uh, it's a partnership between um, PolyUp, which is a math platform, a math kind of coding and gaming platform, and uh, Q, the, the the large California and Nevada organization. Uh, donors choose the Computational Thinking Alliance and uh, obviously participate. Uh, and and it's mainly designed to address issues surrounding things like learning loss and, um, you know, getting students, teachers, and parents kind of all prepared, hopefully for, you know, coming back to school in the fall. I, I would strongly suggest you take a look at uh, uschallenge.org because I do think it's it's kind of an interesting uh, endeavor that we're, we're, we're undertaking. And uh, I've been doing some streaming on it on the Participate channel, which is the same channel we do the uh, chat on Education Live. Uh, Thursdays at 2 o'clock, I think we have an episode. I think um, uh, friend John Crippo is, is on the US Challenge uh, stream with me this week. 
um, talking about this. Um, and I think that there's going to be some other initiatives um, that other organizations kind of use to address some of these questions. I think they're great questions. I think it's a, a super important thing to talk about. You know, my wife is actually doing a lot of, uh, in Ontario, they call them AQs. These are the uh, university credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's been taking advantage of this time to like do some some catching up or some revitalization of uh, of kind of the some of the things that she's been learning and wanted to learn for a while. Um, but yeah, you know, it's we, we're we're coming into a really strange time that you know again as our as our next guest uh, would would say is is also not necessarily a time to study. Um, you know, remote learning and distance learning, because that's not what we're doing. And we've talked about that before, like where, you know, this is really emergency learning or forced. What did he say? Forced, forced remote learning. Mm-hmm. He had a saying for it. Yes, I can't remember. It's really good. Do you remember what it you was guys, called again? You guys should listen to it. No, I can't remember, but it was a smush together of, <laughs> of a few different words, which was good. Yeah. So, you know, we're definitely, you know, in a, in a mode where, you know, there's a lot unknown, and um, it's going to be a, a Herculean effort to bring everyone together and and come up with solutions um, that may not be work for everything for everybody. But you know, if we can again see what everyone's doing and take pieces of it and learn from each other, I think this will be a moment for us. For it sure. can be a moment that defines us for sure, as a well, people, a little bit. You know what I mean? As a generation. Yeah. Uh, of educators uh, to to see what we're made of and see what we come up with and how we solve this yeah. giant global problem. So join us when we come back. We'll be talking to our guest, Eric Kalen. Stay with us. GoGuardian helps thousands of K-12 school districts maximize the learning potential of over 8 million students. GoGuardian's products enable productive and safe digital learning by helping educators identify learning patterns, protect students from harmful and distracting content, and support mental health. To support schools during their distance learning transition, GoGuardian is offering free access to their entire product suite until the end of the school year. To learn more about GoGuardian and download their free resources about distance learning, visit their Distance Learning Resource Center at GoGuardian.com slash distance learning. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Our guest this week is the author of What the Academy Taught Us and Education is Upside Down, Reframing Reform to Focus on the Right Problems. He's a high school English teacher and a prolific author of a number of blog articles and journal articles and magazine articles, all very interesting. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Klenz. Howdy. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so, Eric, pleasure. we'd love for you to go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience, share a bit of your background, and then what brings you to us today. Okay. Um, well, I started as a, a classroom teacher in the late 90s. I uh, taught in a, a pretty large metro high school here in the Twin Cities. Uh, I was a football coach. Uh, advised school newspaper, all that stuff. Uh, maybe uh, three or four years into my career, I kind of started to see that some of the things I learned in ed school didn't exactly check out when it came to generating effective learning. You know, I, I was... I was pretty sure I could keep the kids' attention and get them to like me and get them to be engaged and all those things. 
but when I kind of had them doing a lot of the things I was told to um, uh, told to do with them, I wasn't sure that they were. I was really moving them. <clears throat> I was keeping them engaged, but I wasn't too sure about the learning. Uh, I kind of dove back into. Uh, just being an independent educational researcher at that point, just kind of um, on my own. I, I basically started reading the stuff that my ed school explicitly told me not to read. Mm. Um, uh, things like Edie Hirsch, which were, you know, it was practically forbidden in ed schools, and they kind of curled their lip at it like that guy's out of his mind. And so I read it, and then I'm like, he was describing exactly what I didn't think I was hitting properly on. Uh, and then I just kind of went down, down, down into the rabbit hole. Uh, and I learned that there's a whole history behind why the training of educators goes the way it did for me. Uh, and I kind of figured out, even though that Hirsch wasn't necessarily a, a how-to manual by any, by any means, I started to look up some of the cognitive science that was kind of underpinning a lot of his work. And I started to figure out ways I could apply it in my classroom. And I saw incredible differences in how my kids learned and how they performed and how my classes went. You know, my my kids did not rebel, okay, um, when I tried these very different methods than I had been so encouraged to do. Uh, so that was about a 10-year career. Uh, and then I left the classroom for more, like, educational leadership-type positions. Um, I ended up ahead of school. I ended up working in uh, central office administration uh, at a big district here, Minneapolis Public Schools. And as, a, as I kind of started to amass these other experiences, I kind of realized I maybe had a book here. Like I just kind of saw a bunch of things kind of congealing, and I'd gotten enough looks at the enterprise from enough, uh, enough different you know, angles that I was kind of forming some of my own, you know, uh, hypotheses or, or arguments about, you know, what we might want to focus on a little bit more. And hence that, that first book title in 2014, Reframing Reform to Focus on the Right Problems. Uh, that led to um, uh, conferences and things like that I got invited to speak at internationally. Um uh, and nationally, and I became an, an organizer for an, uh, a, uh, an organization that's kind of dedicated to increasing the research literacy of the whole field. Uh, here in the U.S., it's called Research Ed, uh, and that led to a second book, which is about continuous school improvement, uh, and, you know, uh, many of the, the articles that uh, um, Mike referenced in the, in the opening. So um, that's kind of um, what I'm doing. Um, I'm still a very full-time educator working in schools, uh, but I have this very uh, pronounced kind of second ed life that takes place in the, in the research and um, educational improvement space. Interesting. Um, we've had a couple situations uh, like the one we're in today where we've had an interview um, originally scheduled and, and for us, it actually was quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. We were scheduled in October mm -hmm. uh, to talk with you and, and, and it was, it's been put off a couple of times and, 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 and stuff like that. Um, but I actually think as I thought with those other couple interviews that we've done where almost a similar situation has happened, this might actually be a better time to talk to you mm -hmm. than in October. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad yeah, you're, you're with us now. So I guess the first question I have or a question I have for you is, you know, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How is your, um, your school doing? Um, and how are you kind of getting along in this strange, strange time we're living in? Yeah, it's been, I mean, 
I, can't, I won't say it's easy. I will say like being an educator is harder than I can remember it being for a long time. Uh, uh, and again, like I say, the past like 12 years, I've had a lot of, had a lot of roles that like were in schools regularly, but were not 100% of the time in a school that I very much do now. Uh, and so to be seeing it, not from a kind of like a hovering view or a supporting view, but really down in it, uh, uh, it's been handy, uh, because a lot of the things that I think I've, I've lived by when it comes to my independent research life, uh, are, are kind of being put to the test by this whole situation uh, in that uh, whether it's people in the field asking me, well, like, what do you think we should do? Or my colleagues asking me, because I have kind of a, a semi-administrative, like, instructional improvement role in my school, kind of looking at me and saying, what do you do? Um, uh, I've really just had to say there is no proven thing I can tell you to do right now. There's none. Uh, I wrote two, uh, a couple blog posts about it. Like we are officially in the evidence-free zone. I mean, this is this is not an area that has any precedence. There's no proof of what is the most effective thing to do, and there's certainly and there's certainly no playbook. So for the person who like lives and dies by educational evidence before you make your decisions, uh, when someone says, "Well, what do we do?" I'm like, "We have nothing to go on right now." <laughs> Like, and the yeah, one, I think a lot of books are going to get written after this. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's one of the things that I've actually on Twitter, I've, I've kind of like, I've lost my mind a couple of times because I learned that some, uh, some of our biggest, um, uh, like educational, edu educational research, uh, hubs, okay. Uh, federally funded, uh, are deciding this is a great time to study this environment. I'm like, unless you're studying it for what happens in a disaster response, this period should not be studied. Like mm. this is a crummy time, for instance, to try to gather evidence about what works in distance or online learning, because it's not simply online learning that's going on. It's distance, forced distance plus online that all had to happen within a couple of weeks, which is to say nothing about all of the very altered environments that are going on at home. So yeah. including homes that have zero tools or access to be able to access this new mandated approach, which, you know, so I would say, uh, um, if we're studying it to better understand how we might mobilize a disaster response, uh, in a very like essential capacity, that's how we should measure it, but not mm -hmm. let's see which online tools work because really <laughs> you're only going to get. I mean, I, and I just keep saying over and over, like, how about the 25% of people who aren't able to even partake? So we're going to get, we're going to get educational research conclusions based on the 75% or 60% or whatever it is. We don't even know that. Who yeah, are we, just, we just know which ed tech tools haven't paid their Amazon web services bills <laughs> properly yet. That's right. So, so and it's a term that I call, uh, uh, in my blogs, I called it, uh, it's distance learning and it's disaster learning. So it's disastance. It's like, it's, it's not just, like it. it's not just distance. So you need to copyright say, that right uh, now, it, tomorrow. Uh, man, I've given so much away. It's not even funny at this point. So, uh, but, but it's a disastance learning plan, not just a mm -hmm. distance learning plan. And, and to, to think of it as otherwise really neglects what's going on at homes. So right along that point, Eric, there's a lot of advice. Like you just talked about Edu Twitter and just Twitter in general, or just any resources that people are reaching out to. 
a lot of pointers, hot tips, you know, like what are we actually supposed to be doing, you know, doing during this time? You just said it's unprecedented, but is there anything specific that people, you know, we still have about a month here in Minnesota to be able to go ahead and and do the best we can in this disaster learning. Mm -hmm. Anything that you have as far as any advice for us, you know, as as educators, you know, as instructional coach, we're trying to... We're trying to do our best as far as giving the what we know can possibly work in an, in an online learning situation, which this is kind of that, but not really, you know, as, as, we, as, as we were doing that. But let's just say that people have access, you know, like in my district, we made it, that was our first, first uh, goal is to make sure that we had everyone had access both to devices and obviously uh, high-speed internet. Mm-hmm. Anything that you that you're like, okay, well, we some yeah. fundamentals as far as yeah, you would give. Well, and it, and it, and unfortunately, we're we're a little far along in this. Uh, yeah. But I know, like one of the things in my and it's been a premium that I've put on in my in my role at the, at the charter, uh, and then certainly stuff I've written online is is uh, take a take a tip from what we know to be in, you know effective in the classroom, and that's to be good formative assessors. Okay, as in like, mm-hmm. like, did you go into this great point? A, did you go into this with a formative approach, or did when the governor said we're going to be closing and you have a week to get ready, everyone scrambled to find all the stuff we were going to do? Because if you did that without any real consciousness of what your families could handle, what your families wanted to handle, I mean, uh, depending on what community you're in and shoot mm-hmm. what neighborhood you are in and which community. <laughs> You're going to have different people facing different mountains. Yes. Uh, so, uh, what I keep saying to that when, you know, at my charter, I just had to slow the leadership group down and say, we have to come up with a, uh, um, or think like an app developer. Have you heard that term before? Like, app developers never throw a completely finished product out in the world. Mm. Okay. And they know that they're not. Okay. They take their initial surge of venture capital. They build what they can, and then they throw 1.0 out there, 1.0 out there, harvest a ton of feedback and say how they can improve it. Okay. And then 1.1 and 2.0, like soon follow on. Like that's basically what we did is we came up with a, a, like a base. This is what it's going to look like week one. Okay. And then we just kind of crossed our fingers and went, how'd that go? And, and we learned right away, you overshot, you didn't give us a convenient enough way to access the 45 assignments your seven teachers threw at all of our kids and I have four kids. And so, okay. So week two then contained some improvements or enhancements. Okay. And so on and so on. And now I would say by the time we've gotten to week five here, okay. I think we're in six officially now. Who who really knows? I know. And all the, all the days are the same, you know, it's like, what's a Saturday. Um, but uh, but I know that's one of the things that the school is at now is when the, by the time the governor said, and it was just very recently, in the last you know eight days, we're staying in for the rest of the year, we all kind of looked at each other and went, I think we have a product we can move ahead with. Like, I think we're going to be able to survive because we took the four, first four weeks to be purely formative um, uh, and just kind of massaged the... You know, like, so that, that would be the advice. If we could start it over again, the thing I'd love to tell everybody is don't listen to other districts. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like, don't, don't go listen to what the district next door is doing. 
Uh, don't say they have 17 cool tools that they're using, and they're called Zip Zap, the Bluter Blorp, and the <laughs> I'm using the Bluter Blorp to you know conduct my Bluter meetings, and I'm like, if you start getting in this competitive issue, I mean, and that's I guess that's one of my big issues also in education is that's how we make a lot of our decisions in the first place. We kind of see what's what's faddish and what everybody else around us is doing and accept them out of hand as a great solution in my district. And I don't know that that's why. I mean, that's what the entire second book that I wrote was about, was we kind of do these top-down things that come from central office that are informed by little more than it's just hip right now. You know, like the district next door has one to one iPad, so we got to do that. You know, parents are clamoring. It's like, well, but... Is it proven to work? Is it proven, right. is it proven to move anything before we spend millions on it? Um, you, you, yeah. you definitely have to like teach formatively. Uh, you know, we talk about formative assessment in the context of, of teaching kids and, and assessing where they are. And but like um, like you said, I think that that iterative approach maybe even another another more way to say it that, yeah. that teachers would identify with. Right. You know, this idea that you you have to and to use another app term or whatever an mvp a minimum viable product is kind of what you got to put out there Mm -hmm. um and say okay you know and and i'll credit actually i have a really good example my my son um my grade six son's teacher um you know pivoted in the second week like right away and it was it was actually quite good um she was like listen i i see the things that i didn't do right the first week and i appreciate that you've been patient with me but you gave me really good feedback and here's what i'm doing to make changes to adjust and and go forward a little bit differently um and 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 that's going to look different for every single person and what's working for you at your school in Minnesota and what would have worked for me. I taught at a private school in, in, in Toronto versus, you know, what's, what's working at the, the public school, uh, the public elementary school down the road and what's working at Glenn's high school, public high school in in Minnesota, completely different and not, no one is the same. And, um, you know, it's it's tough, but you but we got to you know kind of roll with it a little bit, right? Absolutely, yeah. And 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 I think the hard part, you know, going back to Glenn's first question, is the only thing I would tell people is 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 when you come up with your your minimal minimum viable product, uh, like get yourself in the mind that you will be changing a lot in the next few weeks, a bunch of times. Okay, the same way you would in your instruction. Okay, when you when you have the lesson that so looks so beautiful to you, uh, mm-hmm. but it's clearly not hitting with half your kids, you have to make that some adjustments in the moment. Um, this is the same way. Like like get comfortable with you maybe pivoting a bunch of times because I think, I, and I, I have one story from this. Uh, one of the big bursts of feedback that we got back right away was all the teachers aren't they're not uniform enough. For my kid to be able to be able to feasibly manage it okay like this one wants it done this way this one wants it done this way this okay so we just said we do want to be able to maintain some of how we do what we do but can we come up with a one like at a glance sheet of all of the responsibilities so i built a google form i shared it with all the teachers 
it was their responsibility. And it was, there was one tab that was for core subjects and one tab that was for electives. So just like on a glance, if I can see four subjects, okay. So like the core four language arts, social studies, math, science, put your tasks in the due dates, put hot links into the, in, into the cell. Okay. That will lead them to the detail in your Google classroom. Okay, so they could look at it in one shot. Okay, but that was an enhancement based on their feedback. Now, mm. the initial blowback from some staff was just like, "This is going to take so much time. This is going to." It's just like we have to be comfortable. Yeah. Okay, and then what do you know? One, I I coached a few like over the phone and said, "You know, look at the screen with me. Let me show you." And they were like, "Oh, that took eight minutes." I'm like, "Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not that much." Yes. And they're like, it's "How long?" For how long is everybody going to layer in a new policy and operation? I'm like, until it's more convenient for the parents. And that's, that's tamped down. Okay. And now work is coming in at a heavier rate and we can, you know, we have the kids who are completely off the grid are absolute outliers. So now we'll make a plan for them. Okay. Not when it was in the whole like really crazy period. But now the kids who are just like, wow, they've, they've been MIA for three weeks. Like, they haven't turned in anything for anybody. All right, we need a heavily administrative response and support to go out to them. We don't know what's going on. You know, the parents could both be in the hospital for all we know. Mm -hmm. um, but we left them to be scooped up later uh, after we got kind of the mass settled down. Eric, I, I had a question about mm -hmm. you're an educational researcher. Mm -hmm. We just asked you about some tips right now you know as far as this next month we're, we're late already i mean if we're we're gonna we're gonna stop actually instruction within the next few weeks because we have to do all of these other things that we just take for granted device pickup uh, all this yeah. kind of you know all these types of you know just uh, things that have to be done as far as the district so i'm thinking about though for next year because we're already having those conversations mm -hmm. if the outlook looks like it potentially is looking right now where we might not start face-to-face -face instruction or there's going to be a, a blended approach of some sort because we yeah. can't actually have all the students in the school at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Are there things that we should be doing this summer as far as professional development is concerned with our instructors? Because there's so many directions that people want to, that people want to push us in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, as far as like, there's a neighboring districts you were just describing, there's administrators, there's specific teachers, there's even other instructional coaches. We're all disagreeing as far as what we should, where we should basically mm -hmm. put our efforts and our investment of our professional development times, funds, all of this stuff so that we can do the best job we can as far as preparing the teachers for that fall. That could be... Mm -hmm. the, the most insane beginning of a school year as this was the most insane ending of a school year. Is there anything that you would say, like if you already knew, okay, I'm predicting there's at least going to be some sort of disruption. Mm -hmm. Is there something that's, that's you would say that we should be investing our professional development dollars into? I know it's a tough, I'll put you yeah, on a spot there, but you're a researcher. So I want to make sure that we ask people who have. Well, well the cool part is like yeah. when, when there's no precedent, the research background goes out the window. It really does. Yeah. I mean, it's really, <laughs> at this point, it's just my, like, it's just my advice. Uh, yes. Um, uh, well, we want but, that advice. <laughs> but, one of the, uh, um, but all those things, like, kind of being in the mix, uh, 
there's a saying I get, and again, I was a football coach, so I have a zillion and one football coach ways of looking at things. And I, and one of the things I keep saying at school and to everyone I talk to is keep the main thing, the main thing. Mm. Okay. Like, cause I think the tendency would be when, when we say we got to train people in something that we will automatically think we have to train them in toys. Okay. You know what I'm yes. Like, yes, I do. Here's your class kick. Here's your Google classroom. Here's your this, here's your that. And I'm like, is that the main thing? Like for me, the main thing right now is I need to know, I need to know better that when I don't have face to face with my kids to watch a kid be lost so I can descend on him or her and say, Hey, you know, what can I do for you right now? I can tell you just kind of, I, that's gone. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So I'm like, I'm like, Without having that, how can I be sure Jacob or Janie or whoever I'm thinking about um, uh, is learning what I need them to learn without me to be right with them? Yeah. Okay. And and it's like and because to me that that's my main mystery uh, is that I'm sending things out, kids are doing them, and that's the extent to which I'll get high quality. Okay. And, and I just have to trust that it's going well. You know what I'm saying? So like, for me, the main thing is I need better ways to harvest proof that the learning is going on that I intend. Mm. Okay. Now is a tech tool possibly the answer to that? Possibly, but it might just be, I need to have more video meetings with them. You know, it might be something completely different. So like, and, and when I say keep the main thing, the main thing, that's not to be wishy-washy. It's to say that anybody who's starting to plan this next step in the PD journey and things like that should really be thinking about and maybe even ask staff, um, uh, what do you need to get better at? And I'll bet mm -hmm. you anything. <laughs> Staffs around the U.S. are not going to say, give me more resources. because yeah, yeah. We're uh, overwhelmed. Because right? that's right. Like, like they, I mean, they can't even take the assault on their inboxes right now. Right now, I don't yeah. think that's, I mean, and I, I have a pretty decent pulse on how this stuff goes because I'm, I'm out there doing stuff all the time and I don't see teachers go, tell me more ways I can reach my kids. You know, uh, tell me more ways I can, you know, I, I think teachers would like to figure out, I, I, I can speak for myself. I guess I didn't know because I was never heavily tech dependent. I didn't realize how, inefficient tech was for the grading part of everything. Mm. Like it doesn't, nothing's automated. Like, uh, if I want to add comments and things like that to students written work, it's very difficult. It's very it's time consuming. Uh, um, whereas when I had them on paper, uh, it's very automatic. Um, or, uh, and there's something that I do a lot of, okay. And it's, and this is kind of based on my teaching, uh, kids don't respond. And again, not to get too like researchy about it, uh, but, uh, one of the things we know from research, uh, and I'm happy to share more about this if you, if you want individual feedback on things like written work. Okay. So written on the paper yes. is actually kind of a low, uh, it's a low yield strategy for getting kids to go the next step. If you really take apart how they behave in the next step, one of the things that's incredibly high yield is for me to read all of the papers, score them, keep track over on the side of common errors and then do whole class feedback. Okay. So I very explicitly teach, this is what I saw a lot of. And now I want to tell you how you can fix that in the future. Interesting. Okay. Yes. So, and it's incredibly efficient. I've kind of lost the ability to do that now. 
Okay. And, yeah. and, and so because I, I can have video meetings and I am doing whole class feedback based on the things that they sent. But if only seven of my 22 kids show up, only seven get the, you know, and as much as I'd yes. love to require the next step, I don't know that we're living in that world right now. So, no. so you know what I mean? Like to me, I have a different main thing, Glenn, than your school might be. Yeah. So I would say like the first thing is figure out what people are struggling with. Focused on that. Then work like the Dickens to like, you know, to provide more learning in that. Um, and I, and don't be surprised if it's not more resources. Okay. Cause the vendors will be coming. The vendors will oh, be yeah. happy to sell you PD for yeah. the summer. Uh, um, but you need to like, this might be the sort of thing y'all can do well yourself. Interesting. Uh, I, Eric, I've spent a lot of time um, over the last week or so reading um, your blogs, mm-hmm. uh, certainly your Twitter feed, um, and 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 scrolling through uh, you know a bunch of your articles and stuff like that. And you obviously have um, some pretty strong opinions on ed reform, um, you know what's going right, what's going wrong, stuff like that. And I'm curious. Um, you know, because I'm the guy that always, you know, will respond at the end of some segment that Glenn and I do with, hey, listen, everyone, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I but I so I hate the idea of of dumbing things down. And I certainly don't want to do that. Um, but I'd love to know what is, you know, one aspect of education reform um, that we aren't talking enough about? What's something that's being missed in like these broad conversations? And also what's something that's a bit of a red herring? Like, what are we, what are we just like, and maybe it's ed tech tools because I think that there's, there's certainly a lot of uh, overwhelming focus on, on the things that we're doing, but um, I'll let you have your take on what's something we're talking too much about in ed tech reform or in education reform uh too much about um well and for me this is again the whole my whole first book is basically on this question like the, yes. the first book is basically like uh um here's how we get taught okay here's how educators get taught and we don't learn very much when it comes right down to it about the science of how people learn and i mean all people learn that's that's the beauty of it too is like cognitive science is uh, uh that's all people you know, it's a brain is a brain. Um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, when we say, here's how all people learn, we don't learn much about that. Okay. We learn about, we kind of learn about how to engage people into learning with this kind of um, assumption that you must be motivated to learn in order to learn when actually the arrow points the other way. <laughs> like you have to successfully learn in order to be motivated. Okay. So, and that's what all of, you know, the science of expertise will tell us all these things. Okay. So I say we don't learn those things in our training programs. We go into schools and then in the last 20 years, okay, in the U.S., I would say thinking about like the advent of Ch- No Child Left Behind. And that's when I would say like big R educational reform start. Okay. We're going to hold teachers more accountable. We're going to change the standards. We're going to have standardized tests. We're going to put schools into, um, you know, like corrective status if they are chronically underperforming. We're going to have charters in the mix, and they are going to add competition to the education marketplace, and that's going to get the traditional system. And to me, education reform, that's what I think of when most people talk about reform. 
Okay. And I think it makes some teachers kind of, uh, uh, teachers and, and leaders, you know, bristle at the term reform because they have assumed that that's what all education reform is about. Okay. Is those structural reforms. Okay. And my point in the book is, uh, first book is like, um, a lot of the reforms that were being put into place, like uh, increased accountability, changing standards, I, I likened it to uh, beating a blind horse. Uh, to borrow from the, the, the term of beating a dead horse, uh, you, if you beat a dead horse, it's not going to move. Okay. If you beat a lazy horse, maybe you'll get it to move. Uh, my issue with education is a lot of us, because of how we're trained, it, we can't see the right way. So my thing that, that I think we talk a little bit too much about is structural reforms of any kind. And that's, uh, you know, higher accountability, standardized tests, things like that. And I know whenever I say stuff like that, people who are heavy on the big R reform side say he's anti-charters, he's anti-standardized testing. I'm like, nope. I'm actually for those things. Uh, but what I really want to see is an increase in practices, okay, an increased focus on practices uh, and preferably practices that have some evidence to support them, okay, uh, as in practices based on the science of learning. You know, we, we know a very key thing from learning science. For instance, I'm just, I'll pick out one. Uh, um, uh, we can't think well about stuff that we don't know. Does that check out? Hmm. As in, we need background knowledge to be able to think well about anything. Okay. And some people, uh, uh have tested it and basically, uh, and this is from, you know, clinical trial. We pretty, we can confirm that reading comprehension, uh, is more dependent on background knowledge than almost anything else. There's a, uh, the, uh, uh, Recht and Leslie did a famous study called the baseball study. Are you aware of it? Mm, baseball no. study basically. And I, and again, I'm, and, and careful, Mike, you're going to send me, this is going to be a rabbit hole for me. <laughs> so sorry. You're coming along for a minute. Yeah. We got in the weeds here. Yeah. Sorry. It's but, all right. But when I talk about practices and I talk about informed on studies that are very soundly backed, I'll just talk about the Recht and Leslie's baseball study, which was basically they took a bunch of students, okay, who were considered low performing readers. Okay. They give, they gave all of those students some background tests to see how much they knew about baseball. Okay. Um, among the low-performing reading kids, several knew a lot about baseball, okay? <laughs> then the high-performing kids, they did the same thing. The high-performing reading kids, okay, gave them the same test on baseball. Then they gave all of the kids a reading passage that, had, that, was, that contained a lot of technical baseball terminology in it, okay? Well, the low-performing kids who knew a lot about baseball outperformed the high-performing kids who knew nothing about baseball, Hmm. Okay, and this is over and over. We saw um, uh, there's a gentleman named Thomas Stickt who who basically uh, replicated a lot of that same work with uh, um, uh, graduates of high school in the military. Okay, so kids who uh, had a lot of uh, knowledge about the military could, but who were considered poor readers did well on military-based content because they could just comprehend the reading. So, and and again, I could go on and on about how crucial background knowledge is to reading comprehension, to critical thought, to everything. But in our training programs, we've actually demonized the building of background knowledge. It's at the bottom of the pyramid. It's not a higher order thinking skill. And, I, and in my first book, I say it's an essential order reading skill. Um, and we have somehow de 
you know, like we've, we've de-emphasized its importance. Um, and so basically when I say uh, we could have practices based on those learning scientific principles that would help us create an all-around better enterprise, but instead we're talking about how to make lift charter caps, <laughs> you know, and, and that example is just one, okay? That's just one of the things that we do, uh, that we have uh, plenty of practice that is glorified but is not at all backed in the science about how people learn or gain expertise. Um, uh, and, and so that first book is basically like, uh, and it's called Education is Upside Down. That basically refers to this metaphor in it that says we teach people in an upside down way and then wonder why certain people constantly don't perform well perform. with the system. And it's like, well, we might not be teaching them according to how they would learn best. Uh, um, and instead, we're going to try to fix it by holding teachers more accountable. And, <laughs> and so I'm just saying, like, I'm not against full scale a lot of the, like, big R educational reforms. But, but I'm a reformer. Don't get me wrong. Because uh, reform at bottom means you want something to change. Yes. But I'm not a structural reformer. Okay. I'm a practical reformer. Uh, and, uh, like, I believe there are things we could do better from a practice standpoint uh, that would be a lot easier to teach, for instance, than it is to um, uh, institute, you know, entire nationwide sets of standards. And we're seeing how that's gone. You know, like, yeah. it, that's part of it. You know, like I'd say, that's part of it because I think it will goose the other parts. Um, uh, uh, and I even argue for that in the first book. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it's the practices that need to change, not all these huge structural matters. And I think when we've kind of eased off on the, the original no child left behind uh, kind of set of guidelines and stipulations, um, uh, it's a step in the right direction because I think we, we attempted to reform our way out of terrible practices only to find after doing it for 20 years, it didn't change anything. So when I read, when I wrote the book like six years ago, I basically said, we're going to pull the plug on NCLB. And when we do, nothing much will have changed. Wow. And I was, and I was right. Yes, so, you were. <laughs> so, and now I'm, I'm hopeful because there's a little bit of a, uh, there's a little bit of a surge in this. Like, tell me about those practices. Do y'all know the, like the work of Emily Hanford and the mm -hmm. science of reading? Okay. She's an, she's a, a writer for American public in, American public media. So NPR, uh, and she essentially stumbled on, did you know that all these like thousands of elementary teachers teach reading in a way that isn't how reading happens in the mind of a young person. Okay. Mm. And, and, and it just blew the doors off and people were like, I never knew. And it's right. They never knew. And, uh, research at the organization that I organized conferences for, uh, Emily came to our conference, uh, two Octobers ago and we've been waiting my community. Okay. People who think like me in this whole practical space, They've been waiting for someone of her stature to pay attention to a story like that for years, mm. decades. Uh, I mean, she was getting applause when she walked in the rooms, and she was just like, I, I can't believe this. I'm like, yeah, this is your tribe, man. Uh, like, like, we've been waiting for you. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so she's writing about that exact thing, and it's changing a lot right now. So, so in your latest book, Eric, mm -hmm. What the Academy Taught Us, 
It's a story about how your school addressed the needs of students at risk of dropping out, correct? Yeah. Can you tell us more about the book and, and kind of the lessons learned as far yeah. as w- within the structure? Yeah, and it's uh, it's not about my current school. It's about the school where I was a teacher for 10 years to begin my career. Um, mm. uh, and uh, that story is kind of like, it's kind of like the introduction to a larger argument that I want to make about continuous school improvement and maybe kind of resisting big top down from your district imposed on schools, like how to get better at being a continuous school improvement engine at your school level. And the academy, okay, the sophomore academy is actually an example of um, uh, one of those continuous school improvement efforts. Okay, so it was basically like a, 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 a uh, our principal, a visionary guy named Dr. Bob Perdams. I still count him as my mentor. Uh, he uh, uh, he's retired now, but we're still buddies. I, I depend on him heavily. He um, he looked at a, you know years and years of type of the data at school. Said um, uh, I'm seeing this pattern in kids who who gra- either don't graduate on time or who drop out, and they don't earn enough credits in their sophomore year. He's like, with like shocking reliability, he would say, if you come below this threshold, you won't graduate from here either on time or at all. And he was just like, so we need to do something about that. I'm like, well, how do we find those kids? Well, and I'm just a teacher, but he was like sharing the story with me because he was launching the idea of, of like how to get me <laughs> to be the English teacher. Yeah. And I wasn't real crazy about it originally. Um, uh, but, uh, but he was like, he was like, what he's trying we? to get you on board. That's right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I got this idea. And I know Dr. you Bob. like, I know, I know you like to think about stuff like this, you know? And I'm like, yes, I do. That's an incredible problem for the, you know, hobby researcher that I was becoming. Uh, and, uh, and then he says, uh, uh, but he showed it to me. And then I'm like, well, how do we find the kids? And we're like, I don't know. I want to kind of turn that over to a group of teachers, uh, to kind of start sorting that problem out. And so, and so the big lessons on that one, and then, and then the book goes into, and here's what we did and here's how we kept it together. And here, yeah. here were the main things. We kept the main things. Uh, and yeah. here's how we continually worked on it. Uh, the big, and then there's even more stories in the book about some other continuous school improvement efforts that went on. Uh, and then I just kind of extrapolate that out to say in my time in the field and working with schools nationally, uh, and certainly locally, um, uh, here's some tendencies that I don't see that are like that one time, very healthy school that we're kind of in a top down transformation era. And, and here's what you might want to start to think about doing to be more like that school where I thought it was very healthy. Uh, uh, people still look back on it and say, Oh, I miss those days uh, here for, from quite a few of them. So big lessons were, uh, um, you know, how do you grow it from within? How do you stay data informed? How do you not just go with your gut? Uh, and, and how do you just like continually adapt and improve? And I guess it, it circles all the way back to, I guess, uh, the original questions about the COVID paradigm, uh, in that, uh, uh, that's kind of what my school is doing now is we just kind of committed to continually improving, but just like super quick, like week to week, not year to year. I, I found it interesting. And, and actually it does circle back also to what you were saying about like this book, the, the, the things that you did um, in the Academy, mm-hmm. um, you know, won't work for every school everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and it takes, I, I think something like what what you did, um, and it's funny how this has come up with me a couple times. We we had some folks on 
a while back, maybe about a year ago, who who wrote a book called Quit Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a book about, you know, the research uh, um, surrounding um, at what point in a student's educational journey are they just are they just done? Yeah. Uh, do they just decide to stop working for you? And what the what the the extrinsic extrinsic. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not getting that word out. <laughs> Extrinsic, Extrinsic yeah. motivators mm-hmm. that are related to, you know, when they decide to quit. Mm-hmm. And, and this is kind of your answer to that sort of stuff where they, uh, how do you stop kids from quitting before they, they actually maybe even realize that they're going to be the ones that quit. Like yeah. your, your, your Dr. Bob saw this, right? Mm-hmm. Like in, in the information, which is also data driven, which is interesting, but you know, I would suggest anyone who is, would you consider this a good guide? I guess you should, cause you wrote it, but um, <laughs> for, for anyone who's dealing with, you know this this idea that that they have lots we have, we have lots of students that are just quitting, yeah, and how to how to save them for lack yeah. of better words. Yeah, well, and, and 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 this actually, and I would always you know as as kind of like the whole body of my work kind of connects at this point. Like one of the and again, I did a lot of work uh, uh, with a local research firm, uh, applied research firm, and I was kind of their education guy. Okay. Uh, and so, and we did a lot of study of student motivation. And so I spent a lot of time in that, which was a nice extension off of just what I'd done practically in the classroom and research wise before. Um, and one of the things we kind of found is that it's about like sixth, seventh grade where kids are really making the decision. Like if you've ever watched the motivation of, of kids, like, like who's engaged, who's, yeah, who's. Uh, dropping out without without dropping out, okay, it's things like that. It's like anytime there's a transition, there's a huge leap. So like K five is, is is one part. The transition from five to six, when you go to the middle school, you see a bunch of kids' motivation flag. Go down. Okay, okay. And so I would argue that it's around six sixth grade. Okay, so like early early adolescence when that is really starting to your the kids are starting to look around like, is this school thing for me? <laughs> okay. And there's, they spend a lot of middle school determining whether they, that is or not for them. <laughs> and by the time they go to high school where things are bigger, uh, just because of their big, being bigger, they're going to be less personal. They're going to be a little bit more academic and business-like and things like that. You're going to see a, another huge drop in motivation in students. Okay. And, uh, in the system that I was in, okay, it was pre the days of like, Middle school being a six, seven, eight. In this district, it was a, is the old junior high model. So seven, eight, nine was the junior yes. high, and ten, eleven, twelve was the high school. Um, and uh, Doctor Bob was basically on a mission to find the kids who were already, while they were in the junior high, had decided school wasn't for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we used their ninth grade data to tell us who should populate the sophomore academy. Okay, so it was kids who were already on the downslide, but it was in all kinds of ways, like. You know, excessive absences. Uh, 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 there were the big fighters, the violent kind of like hair trigger kids. Okay, and it, and people would say that's who that's who, who must have been in the academy. It was like, oh yeah, but there were there were also the like painfully quiet kids, the kids yes. who were they were seeking the cracks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you talk about not letting a kid fall through the cracks. We had some kids who were actively seeking the cracks and just leave me alone. 
Uh, yeah. we, we wanted them too because we knew from our experience that they were just as likely to struggle in 10th grade if they didn't have somebody looking out for them. So is it a guide for how to get kids when they quit? I would love to say so, but I would just very much like you started the last point. Like I would also not recommend doing those actions. And I kind of say that over and over and over in the book, like, like, like continuous school improvement, like by definition is you coming up with the absolute best solution to your environment. Yeah. Okay. And so I can't say what your kids need because that would be, you know, presumptuous bordering on disrespectful. I don't know your kids. I can tell you some things that work for mine, but those came out of hours and hours of discussion. Those mm -hmm. came out of hours and hours of looking at their results. Those came out of hours and hours of looking at other research to say, what have other schools tried? What does the psychology say? What is, okay, so um, our decisions were, and, and to me, that that's what continuous school improvement is all about. You want to make a good evidence-based decision to make your, to choose your solutions. Um, but you shouldn't use the evidence to say, I'm going to try this because it was said to work. I don't know if yeah. it works for my kids. Um, yeah. So I think some kids are, I mean, so go to go way back to the beginning of that. Like, I think some kids are on the, are on the way to quitting as early as their early reading years. Like I say, when you get terrible reading instruction, sorry. And, and like a balanced literacy approach is just not a good approach for lots and lots of kids. Um, if you get kids who can't read and then a huge part of their school day is dedicated to reading and you can't read, um, you're going to find other ways to make your mark in the school. Sometimes yes. when you're as early as eight. Um, and when that becomes, I can make a lot of trouble and get attention that way and never look dumb in front of all my classmates, which starts to really hurt when you're about 11, 12. <laughs> okay. It starts to really hurt. Uh, you start, uh, uh, it's, and it's around those kind of like early adolescent years that kids are making that decision. And, and like I say, the academy was all about, we had kids who were well on the way. Like they spent their whole ninth grade year falling off the map. And so we had to scoop them back off, you know. Uh, Eric, how can people connect with you? Where can they go to learn more about you? Uh, lead us to your website and to your Twitter feed and all that stuff. Yeah, um, my web, my, sorry, my, my blog is called A Total Ed Case. Um, and uh, it is at ericcollins, one word, dot wordpress, dot com. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm currently taking a Twitter break. I just had to thing. do it. Like uh, after some like six and a half years on the thing, uh, um, there's just too much going on on this end, and I'm like, I'm gonna take a few weeks off. So if they look for me on Twitter, uh, please follow. It's it's at Eric Kalenz, E R I C K A L E N Z E. Um, uh, take a look around the feed, see who I follow, see what I do. Uh, I'm happy to do that, but. I won't be back on for a little while, yeah. uh, probably through the end. Well, maybe not through the end of May, but I'll give it a few weeks. Good Pretty enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Eric Collins, everybody, thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. 
Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. Want to support On Education? Visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash oneducation. There, you can get access to full videos of the podcast and so much more. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. It helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.